Welcome to the Coffee Buzz. I'm Brad. Thank you for joining me today. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, shout out to Mr. G for, for getting me psyched up for another episode. He, uh, he sent me a text a few days ago and said, look, man, you owe me two episodes. It's been two weeks. What's going on over there? What are you doing with your life? So uh, thank you, Mr. G. I have to say, it feels good when people notice that an episode didn't come out. Um, where did we leave off last? Money. Yes. I want to continue down this rabbit hole and talk more about the stuff we just can't get enough of, money. It's, uh, it's hard to get enough of it when it keeps getting devalued. So we have to chase it more and more and more. And it's interesting, uh, as I did the research for this, that uh, all the different things that uh, humans have used for currency throughout the years. Um, got a list here, the beginning. Let's see, we had barter system. I bet that was fun, you know, just trading goods and services. Yeah, but after the barter system, we started trading livestock, cattle, sheep, goats. That was used for money. Uh, it wasn't until 1200 BC that we started using uh, some sort of derivative of money, like uh, shells, cowrie shells. They were the first uh, thing that wasn't barter or or, uh, or or livestock. And after that, we moved on to you know metal money, the coins. Um, that was around 500 BC. Let's see. We had uh, leather money, actually, was used in China for a short period of time. Um, then along came paper currency in uh, the year 800. Uh, the first known uh, banknote appeared in China. China had over 500 years of uh, paper money, spanning from the 9th to the 15th century. Over this period, the paper notes grew in production to the point where their value rapidly depreciated and inflation soared. Yeah, it, even back, you know, centuries ago, governments just could not risk the temptation of making more money just out of thin air. Uh, it wasn't until 1800 that the gold standard came along so that each standard banknote represented a certain amount of gold. And banknotes had been used in England and in Europe for several hundred years before this time, but their worth had never been tied directly to gold. In the United States, the Gold Standard Act was officially enacted in 1900. Uh, of course, that didn't last long. In 1930, uh, the Great Depression happened, and it marked the beginning of the end of the Gold Standard. So yeah, we've used all kinds of things. In fact, the uh, Aztecs and the Mayans used coffee beans as currency. I kind of love that idea, I'm not going to lie, but I'm not sure that it passes the property test from Aristotle. Um, he famously defined the characteristics of what he called good money in, in these following ways. Number one, it must be durable. Money has to stand the test of time and elements. Uh, it can't fade, corrode, or change through time. Second one, property that he listed was portability. Um, good money needs to hold a high amount of value of worth relative to its weight and size. And number three, divisible. 
money should be relatively easy to separate, recombine without affecting its fundamental characteristics. And it has to have intrinsic value. Uh, the value of money should be independent of any other object and contained in the money itself, starting with rarity. So we've been on the search for this good money throughout human history. You know, in the last episode, I talked about how our money is debased, devalued through monetary policy of the Federal Reserve Bank, which is not federal and it has no reserve. But if you want more details on that, check out the last episode. Suffice to say, we live in a world where the U.S. dollar has intrinsic value because we, the consumers, all play their game. Well, that and the government forces us to use it, whether we want to or not. Back in 2008, we experienced the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression. The seeds of this financial crisis were planted during years of just rock-bottom interest rates and very loose lending standards. And that fueled the housing price bubble here in the U.S. and abroad. It combined loose mortgage lending regulations which were then turned into loans. They were bundled up into these toxic mortgage-backed securities, but then sold as a solid investment around the world. But soon the house of cards, of course, came tumbling down, and by October 2008, Congress had to approve a $700 billion bank bailout. Um, by February of 2009, they had to pump in another $787 billion, uh, which basically helped avert a global depression. Banks and insurance companies back then were getting bailed out, while regular people were getting wrecked on home values. That was in a best-case scenario and a worst-case scenario ending in foreclosure for some. You know, Between 2006-2008, delinquency rates on homes more than doubled and would continue to soar through 2010. And it was during this time that a protest movement started, Occupy Wall Street. The main idea behind the Occupy Wall Street movement was that the American financial industry crashed the global economy and caused a recession. Out of this chaos, an individual or group known as Satoshi Nakamoto wrote a white paper for a new type of currency known as Bitcoin. It's an accounting ledger that is hosted on thousands of computers around the world in such a way that it cannot be corrupted. There are miners or individuals that make use of computers that turn electricity into Bitcoin. And because of the careful way the incentives have been built around Bitcoin, it's in their best interest to do so. If they tried to harm the network, all the value would disappear for everyone, including themselves. They work in tandem with what are called node operators. A node is essentially a computer that holds a full copy of the Bitcoin blockchain and verifies new transactions so they can be added to the next block by the miners. There are thousands of active node operators at any given moment. In order to erase the Bitcoin blockchain, every single one of them would need to be destroyed. 
On top of this tamper-free ledger lies the money rail. Bitcoin is a blockchain, meaning an accounting ledger. It updates at intervals of roughly 10 minutes that we call blocks, which form a chain in time. And that's where the term blockchain comes from. But it is also digital currency. And this is where it gets really interesting. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins issued in total. That limit rule has been built into the protocol and cannot be changed. You know, part of Aristotle's model that I mentioned earlier about good money is scarcity. And this is what sets Bitcoin apart from almost every other asset class. It is deflationary. The U.S. dollar can't make that claim. Stocks, debt, even gold, which has been a historical safe haven, isn't deflationary. Because if a gold mine is discovered, it adversely affects the price due to an increase in supply. Bitcoin also has no centralized authority like the Federal Reserve Bank that can just up and change the rules anytime they see fit. Whoever Satoshi Nakamoto is remains a mystery, and it actually adds to the value of Bitcoin. This is one of the properties that sets it apart from other cryptocurrencies. There's no board, there's no CEO, just people running rules designed by a group of people or one amazingly smart person who knew that they had to fade into the background for Bitcoin to truly succeed. Because the ledger becomes immutable as each block gets propagated through the network, intermediaries are no longer required to secure currency movements. And this enables the peer-to-peer -peer network in which you can financially transact with anyone in the world at the speed of light without the need of banks, governments, or anyone else to stand between you and the recipient or the sender. But more importantly, having a monetary system which operates outside of the reach of the central banks and governments means that the principles of sound money can be restored. Bitcoin's decentralization offers a radically new and incorruptible way with which to build a more sustainable economy. It offers a window of opportunity to democratize wealth. And it's not without critics, such as accusations like it's used for criminal activities or it consumes too much energy. Aside from the fact that the dollar is used more for crime than any other currency, or that the banking system requires much more energy than Bitcoin's output to operate. These criticisms come from those who have the most to lose from the advent of sound money. Bitcoin is sound money for the digital age. So let's put it to Aristotle's test and see if it holds up. Durability. One can easily understand that a silver coin is more durable than wheat as a medium of exchange but it should be understood that Bitcoin is extremely durable as a digital asset. While a credit card company can be hacked and its data compromised, Bitcoin cannot be destroyed, provided that you do not lose your password connected to it, uh, which is called a private key. So let's take the portability challenge. As you can imagine, it's not easy to transport gold bars in huge numbers, 
But Bitcoin is made of digital bytes, which allows you to move it anywhere in the world. This greatly facilitates transaction and makes Bitcoin impervious to capital controls. These are the things where countries limit the amount of money you can take out of the country. There are several countries that do this. Uh, China, Russia, Argentina, they prevent their citizens from taking money beyond a certain threshold. Even in developed countries, uh, you tend to believe, oh, I have full control over my money, but not really. If you leave or enter your country with over 10,000 undeclared dollars or pounds, euros, it will get seized if you are caught. Divisibility. Bitcoin is highly divisible, which, by the way, addresses a common misconception. You may think that Bitcoin is too expensive already. I think it's sitting around $40,000 or so. But one Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million smaller units called Satoshis, or SATs for short. While you may or may not be able to afford a whole Bitcoin, I, what will ultimately matter is how many SATs you've accumulated. The next up is scarcity. As a unit of currency, Bitcoin cannot illicitly be duplicated or double spent. This technological and cryptographic innovation has made a breakthrough of paramount importance possible, which is Bitcoin's deflationary property. The amount of Bitcoin that can be produced has been capped at 21 million units in total. Bitcoin will be harder and harder to come by over time. The bulk of the supply is already in circulation. Let's say each person on the planet wanted to get in on this. There's only enough for each person to own 0.002 of one Bitcoin if it were evenly distributed. The real point is that Bitcoin is very scarce as a commodity. The last one, intrinsic value. There are people that believe that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. What should be understood is that intrinsic value of an asset is tied to the quality it possesses that make people want it. Just like gold, silver, real estate, whatever. Bitcoin has properties that people want and intrinsic value is relative. Now, of course, governments and central banks are going to fight tooth and nail to prevent mass adoption from taking place. Uh, many nations are going to seek to organize together on this. It's likely to affect Bitcoin over time, but it was most cleverly designed around a robust set of incentives. Should these incentives hold up as intended, the governments and central banks will be forced to also buy Bitcoin to mitigate the risk of being left behind. Once this happens, a phenomenon known as hyper-Bitcoinization will occur. If history is a guide, this showdown is likely to take place like this. Money printing gets out of control, runaway inflation occurs, politicians then blame price increases on businesses, the central bankers put price controls in place, and the collapse that follows will make the Great Depression look like a holiday. In the past, there was very little you could have done to not find yourself at the mercy of these central banks. But now there's an option to help you hedge against this risk. Any perceived risk associated with Bitcoin, such as regulatory 
or environment or its price volatility pale in comparison to the greatest risk related to it, which is the greatest risk about Bitcoin is not owning any. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know this was dense. There was a lot of material here. Let me know if you want to hear more because uh, I could do a whole series on this topic. You can always find me at coffeebuzzpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hit me up on the socials, uh, my handle is the coffeebuzzpc. And if you would like to dig into the backlog, you can do so at the coffeebuzzpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate that. And I will talk to you next time.